welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own, or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. That is a section of writing by the poet John Donne actually from one of his books in the 17th century. Now, whether you've heard it before or not, um, the, the poem's going to be put back up on the screen for you. Take a moment with the people around you. Just discuss it. What do you think it means? Even if you don't understand all the language, you know, it's a few hundred years old. Um, a promontory, by the way, is a piece of large rock sort of jutting out over the sea. Um, a clod is like a small piece of dirt. So just so you know. Um, but take a few moments with the people around you and discuss, like, what does this mean to you? What words or lines evoke um, kind of uh, thoughts for you? What, what jumps out at you? So take a few moments to do that, it'll be up on the screen there for you.
All right. Um, maybe lots of things kind of came up for you as you were discussing. Um, before we kind of move on with this, I couldn't, maybe it's just the Enneagram 7 in me, I could not move on from the fact that this brought up some, um, some two of my favorite songs. Okay, so we are going to do something, a little pause here for a moment. You've heard of the game Wordle with the New York Times that took off and then turned into Hurdle, which is the new version of Name That Tune. So we are going to do a little Hurdle this morning where you are going to get to hear 15 seconds of a song um, and the clue is, of course, this piece of writing by John Dunn. But you're going to get to guess what it is, okay? Two of my favorite songs, um, two artists who would probably never, ever be in the same room. Uh, here we go. Ready? Here's the first song. You get to listen 15 seconds. A winter's day It ain't deep and dark Okay, hopefully you shouted that out already. Anybody know that, right? Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island, right? Like that's from this song. I'm a rock, I am an island. Okay, ready? Song number two, 15 seconds, here we go. All right, Patty Ruggio, wherever you are, I'm, I'm hoping you shouted that out. That is Metallica, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And in high school, I just thought that was a cool name of a song. Uh, didn't realize it was actually from this poem. Uh, What's well, a section of writing by John Donne? Donne's point, if you didn't catch it as you were listening, or maybe you caught it as you, as you, as you read it, is that we are all connected. No person, he says, is an island, is a separate uh, from themselves. And if e any part of us is sort of is washed away, just like a piece of dirt that was washed away from the continent of Europe, the whole the, Europe is lessened because of that. And he's saying we're, we are like that as humanity. We are connected to each other. This idea of for whom the bell tolls, right? A, a bell would toll, a certain kind of bell, a funeral bell to say somebody had died. And people would say, for who, who did that? Who died? And he said, don't ask who died. You did. In other words, every person's death um, diminishes us in some way because we are all connected to each other. It's this beautiful and powerful way of working against our sense of isolation or loneliness or independence to say, no, we're all connected. We all matter to each other and collectively. We're all connected, except for the fact that we live in the suburbs. <laughs> The suburbs. Now, I don't know if you know the history of the suburbs, but basically originally on the continent of North America and kind of primarily the story goes in New York, a sort of a suburb of New York called Levittown um, was developed where people wanted to move away from the city and into places where there was a little more space, into new developments where they could actually afford to buy houses and have homes and have everything set up the way they wanted it to be, and all the homes were sort of done all of the same. But underneath that sort of um, impetus to do this and to create the suburbs was actually was based on racial um, racism, essentially, and classism. This idea of being separate from people who were a different color from us, and primarily, and in fact, almost exclusively, loans and homes were created for whites and not any other ethnic minority. And that this is the, the history, in a sense, of the suburbs as it developed in the United States. And so it doesn't just represent, oh, a little more space, a little more area, and a little more comfort and all of that, but also underneath it, um, this, this separatism, this seclusion, this segregation. 
Now, here in Canada and in the GTA, we would say, no, like that's not, that's not the genesis of the suburb idea in, um, in Canada. That's not what we live in. Maybe actually all three of our sites are in suburbs. And we'd say, no, those are diverse or they're increasingly diverse. And they're not only for a certain kind of people. But I have actually heard people say things like, oh, we used to live in this area, but we're moving out because uh, it's too, and they would actually use a word or some kind of a phrase that maybe you might not say is racist, but is indicative of the fact that a certain kind of nationality or a certain kind of population seems to be growing in that area, and that's not my own, and so I want to move away from there. Or maybe more broadly, people say, oh, it's not like it used to be, or I don't feel like my kids are safe anymore, or there's too much this or that. And so there's this idea of wanting to move to a, a place that is more like who we are. Um, places of you know, comfort and distance, where we can have all of the comforts around us and conveniences, and that we can be still as far away from each other as possible. I mean, think about this. You actually not only, if you live in the suburbs, you not only pay for the square footage of the place that you live, you pay for how much distance there is between you and somebody else, right? The more distance, the more you pay, the more valuable the home. Why? Because we want all of the comforts, but we also want the seclusion and independence and isolation, in a sense, from other people. Now, even if you live in an apartment in a condo, you know you're not looking to hang out with people in the hallway. When you go to the elevator and it opens, you hope what? It's empty. You hope the ride goes all the way down with no one getting in it, right? Even in those places, we don't necessarily want to be close to each other. The goal, in a sense, of the suburbs is, is comfort and distance. And I think just to recognize that we live, although we might like the idea of, oh, we're all connected to each other, um, we live in a place that seeks to maximize comfort, independence, privacy, separation, and insulation. Even if it's not based, uh, it's not racially or socioeconomically motivated, that is just the air we breathe in the suburbs which makes this whole idea of presence that we're talking about around to be present with God and present with each other very difficult. The temptation, in a sense, in the GTA, in a world that is increasingly complex, um, and where they say over the next three years or two and a half years, 1.2 million more people will be moving into our country, many of whom will settle in the GTA. The, the increasing temptation of wanting to be separate from people, wanting all of the comforts, wanting to be insulated, not wanting to be disturbed by what's going on in the world around us only increases. And where we live is part of the problem, is part of the enemy of presence. It is working against this idea. Now, the truth is, though, <laughs> it's not just the suburbs that are working against the idea of presence, of being relationally connected to God and having an extraordinary presence in our relationships with other people. It's not just the suburbs. In fact, this is an age-old problem. If you read the scriptures, the writers of the Bible, especially in the, the first half of the scriptures, which many of us, maybe you've never read it or you just kind of ignore it or you think, oh, there's a few stories, but I don't really get how it all fits together. Well, one of the main thread lines in the whole story of scripture that runs through all of the library of the 66 books, is this that the idea that human beings have a gravitational pull towards themselves and away from presence, not just away from God, but away from each other. That this, this fight for comfort, insulation, isolation, separation, and sometimes you see in the scriptures full-on racism 
um, in, in, with individuals, in families, in tribes, and in nations, and even in religious or faith circles. This is uh, a constant theme running all the way through Scripture. Which is why, and, and yet we see at the same time, God's heart for his people was, was presence, that he would be in relationship with them and that they would bring an extraordinary presence to the world around us. This was God's heart all the way through the scriptures, and yet we see human beings long before the suburbs were created, inside of them is this gravitational pull towards me and mine to, towards uh, seclusion, exclusion, comfort, and looking after myself, whether it's an individual or as a family, or a tribe, or a nation. And yet God's heart was always presence with him and as a blessing to the world around us. And so finally, God sends his, his, himself. He comes into the world, Jesus in the flesh, to actually live out the way, not only to show God's heart of presence to the world, but to show human beings what does it mean to live as a human being in the world, deeply connected in relationship with God and living as a gift and as a blessing, a presence, extraordinary presence to the people around us. Now, interestingly, as we read the biographies of Jesus that begin to explain or show this to us, whether or not you're familiar with them, you probably know this in some shape or form, that the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus died. In fact, just recently we celebrated Easter and we have a whole weekend given to uh, uh, remembering his actual death and celebrating his resurrection, the death of Jesus. But you may not be aware that three years before the death of Jesus, Jesus almost died. He was almost killed. He had a near-death experience. He was nearly murdered by a mob of people. And we're going to actually read that account today because it's not just sort of a fascinating event in the lifetime uh, and story of Jesus on the earth. It is actually because of something he said that was a warning to the people around him about this very aspect of the gravitational pull towards themselves. That is also a warning for us today, we who live in the suburbs, we who follow in the long history of human beings who from the beginning of time as old as the earth have had the same problem with the gravitational pull. So let's listen together. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. 
Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zephyrath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Wow. I mean, whether you've heard that before or the first time, it's really a stunning story of Jesus um, having this interaction with people and a mob coming around and basically taking him to the edge of a cliff in their town and trying to murder him. It's crazy. Um, and the irony of this is this was Jesus' launch party in a sense of his ministry. It occurs very early on in, in Luke's biography of his life. And it occurs in Jesus' hometown. And so Jesus has been just starting to have a very, like, growing and sort of public visibility. He's starting to teach at the various synagogues in uh, Judea, in Galilee, in the area where he's from. And people are starting to recognize that even though he had no formal training as a rabbi, as a religious teacher, as a religious leader, he came from the home and he was the son of a carpenter, which, you know, that sort of determined what you were going to do in life. There was no way that he would be considered to become a rabbi or an authoritative teacher, except he's being asked to speak. And he comes to his hometown as he's, and he's invited up to read a piece of scripture and to teach on it. And so, um, in a sense, like he has this beautiful moment in his hometown, the hometown hero, he's come home and they invite him and say, yeah, come preach. And he picks this passage of scripture that on one level for them was like um, a beautiful section. It comes from this whole uh, section of writing from the prophet, a prophet named Isaiah that was about seven, written 700 years earlier, that talked about a day when someone would come to set the people of God free would lead them into this, this um, newfound freedom, would restore all of the things that had been lost and taken by the other uh, nations that had dominated them. At the present time, it was the Roman Empire when Jesus was reading this. And so this was an exciting passage of scripture. And it says on one level, they were amazed at his teaching as it had built. We don't know everything he said, um, but basically he describes, he, he preached on this passage of scripture. It wasn't all written down. Um, but he begins to teach in a way that they say, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And yet, at the same time, they're kind of perplexed by his message. He, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, which is what Isaiah was writing at the time, because he's anointed me to bring this message, this radical message of grace, inclusion, acceptance, and salvation and he mentions three groups of people in particular in Isaiah's passage that Jesus quotes, to the poor, the prisoners, and the blind. This was what Jesus was going to be bringing to this group of people. And on one level, this would have been like, yes, and Jesus actually says, today this scripture is fulfilled. In other words, he was basically putting himself forward as the one to say, this passage 700 years ago was written about me, and I am bringing this about. And on one level, they would have been incredibly excited at what he said, and another level confused because 
He particularly says this message of grace, inclusion, acceptance, salvation, they thought was for the, you know, the chosen ones. That's who they were. They saw themselves as the chosen people. But Jesus lists the poor, the prisoners, and the blind. And you have to know that those words were not just referring to their physical situations of poverty or the physical ailments of blindness or the physical situation of being imprisoned. The people who were the blind and the poor and the prisoners were people who by their physical situation or their decisions or how other people saw them or their lot in life were excluded. They may have been poor physically, but also or otherwise just poor socially, relationally, or seen spiritually. And so they were outsiders. They were, they were seen as not blessed by God. In other words, those conditions would have said to people, oh, you're cursed by God. You're not wealthy. You're not healthy. Um, you're in prison or you've done something wrong. You're being punished. That's, you're outside of the will of God. You are not, you don't get God's blessing or God's favor. And this passage is talking about God's favor as coming. They would have been like, great, favor, blessing. This is coming to the people of God, right? And Jesus says, yeah, but it's coming to a certain kind of people. And so they would have been confused because those would have been the outsiders. The people say, no, those people don't get the favor of God. And N.T. Wright, uh, the Bishop Tom Wright, who is an author and a professor, um, at one time was a bishop of Durham in England, he explains a little bit in his book, Luke for Everyone, why this was a perplexing message for them. Listen to what he says. Luke says that the people were astonished at the words of sheer grace that were coming out of his mouth. Sometimes people have understood this simply to mean they were astonished at what a good speaker he was. But it seems more likely that he means they were astonished that he was speaking about God's grace, grace for everybody, including the nations, instead of grace for Israel and judgment for everyone else. That fits perfectly with what followed. In other words, that they tried to kill him. Tom Wright points out the fact that Jesus, because he leaves out a very interesting word. In Isaiah's prophecy, the one, if you go to the book of Isaiah, a few chapters back here, you can read the words that Jesus quoted. And he says, it's the year of the Lord's favor, but also the day of vengeance for our God. And Israel always thought, oh, God's going to take revenge on the outsiders and the outcasts on the other nations. And Jesus, when he quotes this, he leaves out the vengeance part. He says, no, this is a day of favor. And the ones who get favor are not the ones you would expect. And so this is a strange message for them. And they're saying he's teaching with authority, but so much grace and inclusion and forgiveness for all of these other people. And so they start to be troubled. And then Jesus goes on and makes what they might have wondered, he was intimating, really clear. And when he does, it sends them into a rage. He basically starts to say, hey, this is the message. This is what it means for the people of God to be a blessing to those around them. These are the ones who are blessed, who are the chosen ones. He wasn't in a sense saying, you're not chosen. But what he wasn't saying was, hey, this is just my calling. Right? They didn't have this reaction of like, oh, the spirit of the Lord is on you and you're going to minister to all these poor people and the people who are outsiders and the prisoners. Okay, great. Good for you. They knew the great implication of what he was saying was for their whole nation, for all people is like, hey, you need to be involved in bringing a message of grace and forgiveness and inclusion and acceptance and salvation to all of these other people. And they didn't want to hear it. 
And he goes on to make it even clearer to say, this has always been God's heart for you. See, they saw themselves as the chosen people. They didn't understand that God had chosen them because he wanted them to be a blessing to other people. It wasn't just something they were just supposed to receive and keep. And he goes back to their history in this passage. You might wonder, like, what's he talking about, Elijah and Elisha? He points back to two of their prophets. And he says, remember, both of them went to the outsiders and brought miracles and healing and blessing to outsiders. To one was a non-Jewish woman, and she was given um, provision by one of the prophets. Not all the other people in Israel. That's not what's recorded. And then secondly, a non-Jewish, a Syrian leper, someone who was a, a, an outcast or an outsider by, by virtue of his, um, his ethnicity as a Syrian, not a Jew, and because of his physical condition as a leper that he would have been considered unclean. And Jesus says, remember, always God's heart has been for all nations, all people. And he says, you know, you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do the miracles here that you did somewhere else. In other words, you're going to have a problem with how radically inclusive my message is. You're going to have a problem with how much I'm blessing other people and it seems like not you and you'll want that for yourselves. And at that point, they lose it. It says they drag him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off. (laughs) In a sense, they want no part of this message. And he even tells them that, I know, he was actually prophesying his crucifixion. They were going to say to him when he was on the cross, save yourself. He actually said to them, I know you're going to reject me. You're not going to like what I do. You're not going to like what I'm asking you to do. And so in his hometown, suddenly his own people, these are the people he would have grown up with that knew his family suddenly turn on him in a rage and try to kill him. Now, on one level, this is a really extreme reaction. On another level, I think it puts its finger on this point. That this idea of presence, ordinary people bringing the extraordinary presence and grace and love and favor of God to others always goes against our natural bent. I mean, this is just true. We don't like this message. We don't want to actually have to do that. We might say, oh yes, it's good to be connected to each other. It's good to realize that we should um, care for the poor. And uh, you know, these aren't the values of the 21st century. They were brought into being by Jesus, right? And you can see them on your schools and on your, you know, and in your company workplace and inclusion and all this stuff. And we can think, oh, that's good. But at the end of the day, there's something in us that keeps preferring to build walls of separation between us and other people who don't look like us, who don't own the same amount of us, who don't act like us, who don't think like us, that don't believe the same things we do. We as people constantly put up walls or we just don't have it in us to do the hard work of tearing them down. That's the fact. We don't want to do the work. We don't like this message. It goes against our natural bent. Which is why it is good news to know that this whole starting point of favor and blessing is not us. It's God. The starting point is God, the one who blesses, the one who shows favor. Right? Jesus says, it is the year of the Lord's favor. We don't have it in us. I mean, we might be able to think that it's a good thing. We might even be able to try to do it for a period of time, but I don't know about you, we always run out of gas. It is not the, the, the desire to actually be a blessing, to show favor to others, to fight the gravitational pull doesn't come from ourselves. It begins with God. And God always said this. This was God's words to his people always from the beginning. And this is what it meant to be the chosen people. 
I will bless you and you will be a blessing to others. This was always God's heart. To be chosen isn't about, oh, you're special, you're better than everyone else. No, I'm choosing you to pour out my blessing on and through you, you will bless others. I will bless the whole world through your life. This is what it has always meant, that God's favor comes to us in order to flow through us. And so here's maybe, if I can say this in, in very simple, not easy, but simple form. The way you and I begin to fight the gravitational pull of not only the neighborhoods we live in, but our nature as people from the beginning of time, the way we begin to fight that natural gravitational pull towards me and mine is by choosing to notice and see the favor of God in our own lives. Choosing to notice and see how God has blessed us. When we begin to see that, we start to realize, wait, God has poured out favor and blessing on me in order to be a blessing to others. This is how this works. This is what it means to be chosen. And so, I want to ask you some questions and really just kind of make this as practical as I can. In this whole idea of what does it mean to be blessed, you know, we often think about the stuff we don't have. We compare ourselves to, to others who have more than us. But how often do we think about what we have been blessed with? And I want to give you some categories to think about this in terms of, oh, maybe what I've been blessed with this and it's meant to be a blessing to other people. Maybe God has shown me favor like this and I'm meant to pour that favor out or use it in the service of others. What about this? Maybe you've been blessed with smarts. You just do well at school. It's not too hard for you or you work hard and you get good results and you get noticed and you seem to be able to growing or you're getting scholarships. Or in your workplace, you're known as someone who has it together or seen as someone who's capable. Maybe you've been promoted. Maybe you've been put into positions of authority and given promotions or power and wealth because of that. If you've been blessed with that, how are you meant to use that to be a blessing to other people? Who are the other people in your class? Rather than trying to compete for more marks or compare yourself to the people who are smarter than you, what does it look like to actually be a blessing to those who struggle in school, who have a hard time with tests or grades or maybe just don't have the support that you have at your home or in your life? Or maybe how are you supposed to actually use the opportunities and prominence and recognition and promotions that you've been given in your workplace to actually be a blessing to other people? This is meant to flow through you, not just stop with you. And not just think, how can I get more or how can I leverage this to get a better job or a new place or more money or whatever? How does that a blessing? How about this? Have you been blessed maybe with a front yard, a backyard, a porch, or a driveway? That these are blessings actually to be used to, to bless another person. That your front yard could be a place of encounter, a place of presence. <laughs> as you hang out there, as you mow the lawn, as you do whatever next to the person who's there, that your front yard is actually a place of blessing. That anyone who comes to play basketball in your driveway or in reach of your house or crosses the threshold of your house or into your backyard, that all of these things, if you say, oh, I have that. And, and instead of constantly comparing on how our backyard's not as big or it's the grass doesn't grow or it's, you know, I'd like a better house or I'm only renting and I don't own and all of that stuff, just say, no, I have it. <laughs> How is it meant to be a blessing to other people? Perhaps you've been blessed to work on a team, either in a sports team or in your work. 
What does it mean that you are there? Whether you think you're the best on the team or the worst on the team or middle of the pack or whether you get to bat at the top of the lineup or you're, you get a lot of playing time or you don't at all or you know, you're recognized as one of the team leaders or you are a team leader or you're not, you are part of a community of people. And that what does it mean to see where you work and where you play as a place of blessing to other people, to actually help others up rather than compete to try to be the best all the time? Maybe you've been blessed with a campsite for this summer or a cottage, either you're renting or you own one, or you have a vacation plan. That can be a place of blessing. The family that lives next to you, the people that you're going to see when you go, the campsite you're going to get that's near other people, the people you don't even know that you're going to run into on vacation, on the road trip, in the plane. These are places of blessing for the people of God to realize, wait, God has put me here and he has given me this favor in order to be a blessing, to be a place of presence and encounter with the people around me. Maybe you've been blessed with a stable and loving family, and by now you would know that's just not the norm for most people. And rather than hoard that for myself, what does it mean to get other people around that dinner table? What does it mean to invite other people into our family gatherings or time together? What does it mean for our home and our family to be a blessing to the neighborhood of the people around us? That this is what we have been given to be a blessing Maybe it would be a good group of friends. You say, you know what? I got good friends. Maybe not a lot or maybe a lot or whatever, but you know, not everybody does. What does it mean for you and your friend group to be a blessing to those who don't, to move outside of yourself rather than always just stick together and always do everything together? I know you don't like these questions. I mean, they almost killed Jesus for it. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm being only partly facetious, right? These are not messages you're going to forward on. Nobody likes to hear the message, hey, you've been blessed to be a blessing. What you have is not just for you. We don't like it. Everything in us rejects it. I know you don't like this. You probably won't ever forward it, but that's okay. We need to hear this is what it means to be blessed. This is what it means to receive the favor of God. Maybe for you, it's time or money. Maybe both, maybe one or the other. Maybe you're retired or maybe you're working part-time or maybe you're looking for work or maybe you just came into a, a bonus or you have a lot of extra money. Whatever that is to say, this is meant to, to be for somebody else. What can I do with this? How can I bless? Or maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something else. You'd say, yeah, it's, it's something else that I realized, oh, I have this. Rather than being so aware of what I don't have or what other people have or how can I compete with others and realize this is a blessing. So I'm going to give you two more minutes just to reflect. I'm going to put those up on the screen. Take two minutes to just say, yeah, what, what favor has I, have I been shown? And how could this be a place of presence and encounter and blessing and favor to the people around me? So just take two, two minutes to think about that.
something has come to mind for you yet, but I want to give you just a really simple prayer that we can pray to begin to realize God's heart for us, to bless us, to show us favor in order to be a blessing of presence to others, love and grace and inclusion and salvation. What we usually pray is, God, bless my fill-in-the-blank, right? Like I pray, God, bless my front lawn. There are so many Tim Hortons cups and bricks underneath it, Lord, from when the builders built it. And that's why it doesn't grow. God, bless my front lawn. I don't actually pray, but I, I do really. It needs intervention. It needs a divine intervention. God, bless my front lawn. What if we prayed this? God, make my front lawn a blessing. Right? Instead of just God, bless my family. God, make my family a blessing. Instead of saying, God, bless my bank account, my financial situation. God, make my bank account, my financial situation a blessing. God, bless my health, my body. God, make my health a blessing to other people. Right? That totally changes how we think about this and how it begins to shift the focus on what we, you know, like, oh, we need from God. God, do this to realize this is what I have. Instead of God just blessing me with the house, God, bless my apartment. Make my apartment a blessing to other people. God, bless my team or bless my work. No, God, make my team, make my work, make my office place a blessing to other people. So let's just take a moment, if we can, I want to actually do that together because I'm sure there's something in our lives that we realize, oh yeah, this is kind of a gift. This is a blessing. It may be a friendship. It may be a family. It may be a, a situation you're in. It may be a workplace. It may be a team. It may be money. It may be time. Maybe whatever. Whether you think you have a lot of it or not, it doesn't matter. We all have something. And so what I want to do is we're actually going to say that out loud together and you're going to fill in the blank with whatever that word is to you. And this isn't embarrassing or anything because we all have something to put in that blank, right? Um, and so just in a moment, on the count of three, we're going to say, God, make my a blessing, right? I gave you the example of my front lawn. <laughs> um, but, but I'm going to actually pray that. That's going to be mine out loud. And I'm just going to say on the count of three, we're going to say it because I want, I want that place, the front of my house, to be a place of blessing to my neighbors and the people I interact with, especially this summer as we're going to be out and about. So on the count of three, we're going to say this. Ready? One, two, three. God, make my front lawn a blessing. Man, I hope that that's a prayer that you pray over and over and over again. Instead of God, bless my whatever, bless our whatever. No, God, make this a blessing. Two amazing things will happen in your life if we keep praying these prayers. One, day by day, you will progressively be freed from thinking about what you don't have. Right? If you keep praying this prayer day by day, you will progressively become free from constantly thinking about what you don't have. And secondly, you will begin to realize that everything you do, your vacation, mowing the lawn, hanging out with people, or having a meal together, is full of the possibility of presence where your life could be a blessing and a gift of favor to somebody else.